If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 4. I do want to apologize up front. I've been battling a cold for the last few days, so I'm going to be sniffing a lot. So please just bear with me. First Corinthians chapter 4. Today we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 13. The title of today's sermon is called Killing Conceit with a Life of Humility. And for you worshipers in training, our key words are pride, humility, and spectacle. <laughs> As we looked at a couple of weeks ago, the first uh, five verses of chapter 4, uh, I stated that we were getting to the end of really this first section that Paul has been dealing with the church. One of the main reasons that he's writing to these people is because of the vision that has, that has cropped up in this church since its founding. It had not been in existence for just a few years, but already worldly wisdom had begun to take over and much division had taken place. And primarily, uh, in a way, in, in a sense that these people were dividing themselves up according to their favorite uh, preacher. Uh, some were in Paul's camp, some were in Peter's camp, some were in Apollos' camp. And so Paul, throughout the first four chapters of this book, has been dealing with this issue of division and, and how you can combat that division by having a proper understanding of wi biblical wisdom as opposed to human wisdom. And so he's been, like as I said a couple of weeks ago, in, in very general forms he had been preparing his this audience. He'd been challenging these people with a a right understanding of biblical wisdom, that the, the proper understanding that helps them uh, to see the church in its right light is to know that Jesus Christ is, is the wisdom of God and Him crucified. That is the message uh, that, that will help this church, and that is what He had been laying out for them very clearly. And as we've seen uh, in the first four, five verses of chapter 4, now He began to become a little bit more specific uh, in, 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 his, in His rebuke, in His teaching, in His confrontation of this church as he began to teach them on how they should regard uh, himself and, and the other apostles, and specifically himself. Because Paul, uh, as, as we know earlier, was the one who really planted this church. He was the one who got it started many years earlier. And many people in that church, for whatever reason, had begun to distance themselves from Paul. They had begun to align themselves with other people. And these divisions had cropped up, not because these leaders were vying for different camps. It was, it was simply in the people alone. Apollo, Apollos was not against Paul, and Paul was not against Apollos. All of them taught the same central message of Christ crucified. And so he began to instruct them last uh, in, the la in, the, in the first five verses of chapter 4 that we looked at a few weeks ago on how they should uh, view his ministry and any, uh, any apostle's ministry, that they were servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And really what people should be looking at is, are they faithful in that endeavor? Are they being faithful to be servants of Christ? Are they faithfully stewarding the Word of God? And so, in that way, he's begun to narrow his focus and become a little bit more confrontational. Well, now, I guess if we could look, uh, label what's happening in the next few verses, or really to the end of the chapter, now Paul's going for the jugular. Now he's about to go for the throat. Now he's about to bring it to home for them. He's about to get very, very uh, specific uh, in rebuking them and trying to correct their, their, uh, their misconceptions. And so that's what he's beginning to do because these people had aligned themselves under various factions and they were beginning to boast uh, in, 
in whose faction they were in and who was the best uh, preacher or apostle uh, that they knew. And so Paul now is beginning to set out to really get down to what he needs to focus on, really bring the confrontation that needs to come. And so this morning, that's what we're going to look at in these uh, verses from 6 to 13. And really, we're going to look at four ways in which it is inconsistent um, to boast in men. Because Paul, that's the thing he's confronting. They're boasting in these different men and they're, uh, uh, they're aligning themselves in these different camps. And so he's, begin, he's going to show them how that is, re- that is inconsistent for the Christian to do that. And he's going to do that in four ways. The first we see there, and uh, well, let me read the whole passage for you first and then we'll come back and, and begin to break it down. <clears throat> Verse 6. I have applied all these things to, to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To this present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And so Paul here is going to be showing them how why is inconsistent for them to be boasting in men. And the first thing we see there is in verse 6. He says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. Now he's now we're seeing why he's beginning to come to the jugular. He says, I've applied all these things. What he means there literally is I have figuratively applied the things that I have been speaking to you previously uh, for your benefit. Remember Paul uh, from about the middle of chapter 3 to, to chapter 4, verse 5, had, had laid out three metaphors in which he was comparing his ministry to. First, he was a gardener. They were in a garden, and they were different. They were dividing up over the tools. One was uh, which tool was better in the garden. Uh, also, we've seen that, that Paul was comparing himself to a builder in, 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 in building the temple of God in, chapter, in the end of chapter 3. And then we've seen... Uh, in chapter 4, at the end of chapter 3 and 4, we see that he was comparing himself to a steward of the, of, of the household of God, that he was a steward of the mysteries of God in the household of God. And so those are the things that he's talking about here that he's applied to himself in a general way, but he's did it for, his, for their benefit because they needed it. They were very confused. They were in their pride and in their arrogance. They were dividing up amongst these people. And whenever they would be for somebody, you're naturally against somebody else. And so they were, some of them were for Paul, but they were against Paulos. Some of them were for Apollos and some of them were against Paul. And so he says, because of that, because of your arrogance, you need this. And so I've applied these things to you for your benefit. Why? That you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. And that's the first inconsistency that he's laying them out to, that it's inconsistent to boast in men because it is against the Scriptures. It does not go with the Scriptures. You're going beyond what is written. The Scriptures are very clear in their condemnation of pride. 
I want to read uh, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 through 19. There, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him, haughty eyes and a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and the one who sows discord among the brothers. And so what, God, what the, the, the proverb is telling us there is that there's these things God hates, but heading the list up is pride, a haughty spirit. <clears throat> because of this haughty spirit, all these other things happen, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift to run to evil, false witnesses, and those who sow discord. All of these happen because of pride, because of a haughty spirit. And these things, as it very clearly says there, are an abomination to God. Those are very, whenever God says something is abomination, that's a serious issue. That's something that we can't just play around with. God hates that with the utmost hatred that He can have. It's an abomination to Him, and so pride heads that list. And that's just one section of Scripture. The Old Testament and New Testament are filled with admonitions of, of how God despises pride and the evil of pride. And so He's saying there that, you, that, brothers, I've applied these things to you, I'm teaching you about wisdom so that you will learn not to go beyond what is written and, and for your benefit. Why? That none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. That's, as I said, I've already said, that's the problem here. They're being puffed up in their pride. That word puffed up literally means to be filled with hot air. As if you fill up a hot air balloon, that's what it means to be puffed up. And so in their arrogance, in their pride, in their being filled up with hot air, they're beginning to divide themselves up according to who their favorite pastor was. And the moment you're on beha- that you are in one person's camp or you're on behalf of one, you're against the other. Uh, the minute you put someone in a higher position, you naturally put someone who are like-minded to them in a lower position. And so the Scriptures do not allow this. The Scriptures do not allow us to exalt ourselves or others above other people or above, uh, above each other because that is, the, that is inconsistent. It is it is the very definition of pride and arrogance. And so the Scriptures very clearly denounce that, and God calls it an abomination. But, you, but what we ask the question, you know, why can't I be proud of my son, of my son's accomplishments in sports? Why can't I be proud of, of, um, of, of my pastor, my favorite pastor? Why can't I be proud of my church? Why can't I be proud of my nation? Or what? Pick a, pick a subject. Why can't I be proud of those things? Why can't I exalt those things in their greatness and, and, and be filled with pride over them? Well, Paul goes on in verses 7 to tell us why. Because it is inconsistent with God's provision. He says very clearly in verse 7, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it. And so he lays out three really rhetorical questions to get them to understand why it's inconsistent with Scripture, but why it's also inconsistent with God's provision because he very clearly says, what is it, who sees anything different in you? Who sees anything different in you? Who do you think you are, if you want to put it in today's terms? Who do you think you are? Or who is it that distinguishes between you? They naturally were doing that in their own arrogance, but what they're trying to get, what he, Paul is trying to get them to say is that who really allows you to do that? Who allows you to distinguish between you? And he goes on further to, 
to elaborate that in the second question there, he says, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? That's getting to the heart of it. Because everything that they have, everything that they had accomplished was a gift of God. It is by God's grace alone. James chapter 1, verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from, the fa- from above, from the Father of lights. And the Scriptures are, are filled with, with, with admonitions and, and, and instruction on how God is the one who, who gives us all that we have. He's the one who gives us breath. He's the one who gives us life. He's the one who gives us everything. Everything that you have and everything that you were able to accomplish is by God's grace, by His good grace. And so what Paul is saying is that you're boasting in your arrogance because you think you have arrived. You think you're the ones who are it. But let me ask you a question. How did you get there? What do you have that you did not receive? Because you're acting as if in your own good wisdom, in your own good understanding, your own knowledge, and your own intellect, that you have arrived. You have, you have made it. And so in doing that, you remember, you are forgetting that God is the one who's brought you there. You know, we're going to have a great example today for those of you who watch the Super Bowl and getting to see athletes who just love the limelight, you know, who just love to get in front of the camera and just, and just and, and dance in the, in the end zone when they get a Super Bowl or uh, when they get a touchdown, <laughs> when they get a touchdown or whatever they do and, and, and the celebration that goes on at the end of whoever's winning. And so those, are, those things are fine. But again... Who made, the, who made Peyton Manning one of the greatest quarterbacks who's probably ever lived? Because, of his, because of, he's just a good quarterback? Because it's in his genes? Because why? Because God's good grace. He was raised in a home. He had a, he had a father who taught him things. He went to schools that taught him things. He lived in a country that provided opportunities for him to become that. And so in our arrogance, a lot, not, not all the football players do, but many of them do, they act as if they're the, they're the greatest thing on the planet. They've arrived. They're the, they're the superstars. And they're forgetting the, the very thing that got them there, and that is God's grace. Even unbelievers experience God's good grace from, in, in, in what they're able to do. And so that's just one example. A bad example of a church who I think had forgotten where they had arrived was the Laodicean church. And uh, that was one of the churches that, uh, that Jesus sent a letter to. <laughs> in Revelation chapter 3, he says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Here it is. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That was a severe rebuke of that church. And that church ceased to exist eventually because they had got to the place to where they, in their pride and arrogance, they had said, we have arrived, we have made it. We have become all that we can become. And so Paul here is instructing this because that's exactly what's happening to this Corinthian church. They are in danger of the exact same things because they're, in their pride they're dividing up 
uh, according to their leaders, but many other reasons too. And he's saying you got to stop that. You have to realize the things that you have, the intellect you have, the wisdom you have, the abilities you have are a gift of God's grace to you. And you need to understand it from that, from that light. And he, and he answers this question, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So he says you did receive it. Don't act like you didn't. Everything that you have, you have received as a gift from God. And so why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Because that's what boasting does. You're saying that I have arrived where I am because of my great intellect, because of my good understanding, because of my wisdom, because of my abilities, my talents, my skills. I am where I am because of that. And that is an abomination to God. Because it is God's good grace that provides everything. He is the giver of all good gifts. He is the giver of everything, life and breath and everything. So we see here that that boasting in men is inconsistent with the Scriptures, is inconsistent with God's provision. But notice the next thing in verse 8. He's going to make some contrast now to help them see it a little bit more clearly. And by doing this, he's going to help them to see that it's inconsistent with the spectacle which is true of God's people. Verse 8, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. You know, they might think, well, thanks, man. That's great. You're right. (laughs) Appreciate the comments. You're exactly right. We have what we want. We have all that we need. We have become rich. We have become kings. Now, probably they're not saying we're kings, but they're acting that way, right? And he says, you've already become that. And, and, and then he leaves a little bit of biting sarcasm. He says, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Paul understands his eschatology. He knows at the end of the, end of the age, we're all going to rule and reign with Christ in his kingdom, right? And so these people are acting as if it's already there. The fullness of the kingdom is already here. But Paul is saying, wait a minute. The fullness of the kingdom is already here, but yet the apostles, the founders of the church, we're not reigning. We don't seem to be reigning in the way you are. We don't have all that we want. We don't seem to be rich. And so he continues to go on and he he explains that further. He says, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. That word spectacle is the Greek word theatron. That's where we get the word theater. That's, that's what they were. It was a theater. God, he's saying that God has made us a display and a spectacle to the world. In the, Roman world that, in the Roman world, that word was used a lot of times in a couple of ways where, you know, you've, you've probably seen movies where the... Uh, the triumphant general is is coming back into town with and leading a parade and and towed behind at the very end are his conquered subjects the people that he conquered and they're in chains and they look beat up and ravished and that's that was used theatron it was that same word and so that's one way that paul could have been looking at this but also another way it was used was to talk about the coliseum the arena where the gladiators would fight you know they would have these events to where you know, ultimate fighting champions, the gladiators would get together and, and pound it out. But then at the very end of the day, when all of that was over, after everybody had got to see their favorite gladiator fight and they'd been able to cheer him on, they would bring out all the criminals and the slaves and even the Christians at sometimes and bring them into the arena and just turn out the wild beasts and let them devour them. 
and that was that was the end of the event. That was the day that they would they would cheer on, you know, the beast and seeing people devoured and eaten up. And so Paul is saying here is that that's what we are. That's how God has exhibited us. I think that He has exhibited us as apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, like the subjects that are being drug in by the conquering general, the slaves in chains, ready to be condemned and and executed. Because we have become a spectacle to the world. We've been displayed to the world as being devoured and eaten up. We're no good. We're, we're as bad off as those slaves and those criminals that get devoured in the arena. We're a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. And so Paul covers it all there. I believe that when Christians are persecuted, it is really because God wants to display us to the world. I think the Bible says that, that when Christians are persecuted, God is displaying His people to the world as last of all. To the world and to angels and to men. He goes on to explain that, what that spectacle looks like in verse 10. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. It doesn't sound like a very great resume to me. But he's using it, the irony of it, he's using it to condemn them because, again, he's telling them, you, you have all you want. You're full. You have, you're rich. Because without us, you've become kings. That's as if you've arrived. You're there. But that's not our story. We're a spectacle to the world. We're sentenced to death. We're last of all. We are fools for Christ's sake. We've talked about that a lot. It's that Greek word moros, which is where we get the word moron. We're morons for Christ. That's the way the world looks at us. But you're not like that. You're wise in Christ. You've arrived there. You're not a moron. The world doesn't see you that way. They see you as being the creme de la creme. You are there. Paul continues, we're the ones who are weak, but you're not that way. You're strong. You're mighty. You've made it. We're in disrepute, but you're honorable. That word honorable means to be of noble birth. You're the nobility. You're the high society. But not us. We're dishonorable. We're low. We're the scum of the earth. That's the way the world looks at us all. Pride and arrogance is inconsistent with the truth that God has laid out for us that we are spectacles to the world. If we're walking in faith with Christ, if we're living the Christian life, if we're denying ourselves and taking up our cross daily, then we are fools for Christ. The world calls us those things. We are weak in the world's mind. We are dishonorable in disrepute. But those of us, like these Corinthians, who want to compromise and who want to say, well, I want the best of both kingdoms, best, work, best of both worlds, then the world does look at us and say, you know what, you guys aren't too bad. You are pretty strong. You are pretty honorable. You are pretty wise. 
Oh, I hope they never say that of us. Because if the world is saying that of us, they're thinking and looking at us through their lens, through their, through their secular understanding of what wisdom is, which has nothing to do with a Savior who was crucified. And the moment that you begin to live a life to where that is the central focus of your life, a Savior who was lifted up on Golgotha, on, on, on Calvary's cross for your and my sin, then there's no way you can live a life where you are wise in your own eyes and you are strong and you are honorable. You were held in high honor. Because how can you stand at the foot of the cross and think that you are strong? And how can you stand and I stand at the foot of the cross and think that we are wise? And how can we stand at the foot of the cross and think that we are honorable? It can't be. Because when we stand at the foot of the cross, we see the very wisdom of God in Christ crucified. And we are left with nothing but our own sin and our own shame. And these Corinthians had forgotten that. They had, their, their consciousness has become so seared and cauterized to where there was no longer any shame. And now Paul was having to come with them with the, with, with the death grip around their neck and shake them and say, you are not kings. You have not arrived. You are not full. You are like the Laodicean church, even though he didn't say that to him to them, but that is exactly what they were like. And he's trying to get them because he loves them to see that you must turn from that path because that path will lead you not, in, not closer to Christ, but further from Christ. And it will ultimately lead you to a place to where you disown Christ. <laughs> and then in verses 11 through 13, he gets, a little, he gets even more personal because he wants to explain to them what, what Christ's servants really look like. What is the Christian life supposed to look like? And in that way, he says, boasting is inconsistent because, because of the life of God's servants. To this present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. I think those are words that display suffering. We suffer in this life if we're living for Christ. It's probably hard for us to picture that because we don't usually go hungry or thirsty. We're usually not poorly dressed. We're usually not beaten and we're, used, and we're not homeless for the most part. But it could be that way. And God's people have suffered these things. And Paul especially suffered these things. He says, To this present hour, as I speak to you in the present tense, right now we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. That word buffeted means beaten. It's the same Greek word when they described how Christ was beaten with the fist when He was standing before Pilate. It's that same word. So God's servants are beaten. God's servants are beaten with the fist as, as, their, as their Savior was. They're homeless. They're dressed poorly. That is so contradictive to what some of the the gospel messages are out there to where you can have your best life now or, 
or you can go out there and you can have all the things in this life now. That is completely and utterly against the Scriptures. Now, God does promise to feed His people, to provide their needs. And David said he had never seen a day when the, when the righteous were forsaken. And so God does take care of His people. But there are times and seasons to where we suffer. And there are many ways that we suffer. Some of us have experienced some of that suffering in this room in the way of disease or, or spiritual attacks or things in, in that manner. So we understand suffering. And Christ in, in His Word tells us very clearly that we must not look at that as being out of the ordinary. That is the ordinary. Suffering in this life is the ordinary. And it's really good because if we were not, we did not suffer in this life, we would love this life too much. And so he is telling these Corinthians that to this present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and beaten and homeless. And Paul, above all the apostles that is recorded, I'm sure they all experienced suffering, but Paul experienced a tremendous amount of suffering. <coughs> he was beaten, left for dead one time, stoned, shipwrecked. In Second Corinthians, he talks about, he lays out a list of things that he went through in his life. Received the 40 slashes minus one one time. And so he, they understood whenever he was saying that to them, that was kind of like a, a, a dagger through their heart whenever he was explaining to them how he suffers. Because they were, they were exalting themselves above their brother who had been their spiritual father. He says, we're poorly dressed and beaten and homeless. But he goes on, verse 12, and we labor working with our hands. You know, why did he say that? You know, that doesn't seem like suffering. When we, we labor, we labor as well. Well, you have to remember in, when you're interpreting Scripture, you have to understand who the, the, the culture that it's being written to and what's going on in that culture and what the people would understand when he wrote that. See, in the Roman and the Greek world, to do manual labor was really despised. You were really looked down upon if you did manual labor. That was for the slaves. That was for the lowly people. That was for the, the servants to do. You were, it, was, it wasn't like today. You know, we, we could see CEOs of multi-million dollar uh, companies out there at their house doing work in their garden or painting their house because they just like to do it. They like to work with their hands and do things. Well, in the Roman world, that was despised. You did not do those things. You do not stoop to doing manual labor. And so Paul is, is confronting them on that attitude because we, he says we labor working with our hands. We all know that Paul was a tent maker. And then sometimes he refused to take help because he, wanted, he did not want to be a burden to the church. And he said we labor with our hands. And so he's confronting them because in their mind they're exalting themselves to the level of the culture that they were around. The culture had become so a part of them, they were so blind to it, they didn't even see it anymore. We labor with our hands. And then he goes on to give some, some contrast further to, to show how people, how he reacts to things. He says, when reviled, I curse somebody out. Is that what he says? No. When reviled, we bless. Man, that's, that's crazy. Who does that? When you, get, when you get their order wrong at McDonald's, who blesses the, the girl who gives you the order? Who does that? You know, or if somebody cuts you off, or, or who, who, who gives them the, the right hand of fellowship with all five fingers? You know, say, hey, brother, have a nice day. Who does that? 
When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. And so these are, Paul is showing them because no doubt they were doing the opposite whenever. No doubt these people, when they were reviled, they would revile back. You know, you get me, I'm getting you. An eye for an eye. You know, we can quote those scriptures in a way we want to feed, fit them, right? To justify our sin. <coughs> but he says, no, 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 no. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We encourage. Because who was the greatest example of those things ever? Jesus Christ. It says when he stood before his captors, he stood there as a lamb before the slaughter, quiet. He did not say a word in his own defense. And he was reviled. He was persecuted. He was slandered. He was beaten. And so why should it be any different? If that's the, if that's the way our king was, was looked at upon this world, why should it be any different for his subjects? And Paul is confronting them with that because he's saying when we're reviled, we bless. And you should, you should do no less. When persecuted, we endure. Because why do we act as if persecution is something out of the ordinary or something that we should never go through? I mean, that's a far, I mean the Scriptures are so clear that we just need to settle in our mind that it's coming. And I think we're lulled to sleep because we are Americans and we don't see it much, but it's coming. It's already here. Maybe, maybe some of the reason I don't experience as much as I should is because I'm not looking as different as I should be in the culture, in the community that I live in. And when somebody slanders me, what is my first reaction? I gotta defend myself. I gotta attack back. Now there's a there's a there's a time for defense, for wrong for, for justice. But there's also overarching all of that, there is always a time for humility and love. And that's what Paul is saying here, is because again, he's comparing himself to where these people are. And hoping that in doing that, he's confronting their conscience to where God will use that <coughs> to get through to them. And then he says at the very end, we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Man, that's a... <laughs> Who says that about yourself? Do you feel that way about yourself? That you are the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Those are some pretty powerful words. It actually means just think of the worst possible place either in your home or business or whatever that you could go to to clean to where you're having to scrape off some, some gunk, some nasty funk. You're having to scrape it off and you're cleaning it and you're spraying Clorox on it and you're getting it all clean, but then what's laying in the floor in, in a pile? That scraped off junk that you clean. That's that word refuse. That's that word refuse that Paul is saying here. We're the, we're the offscurrings of what's left after you clean up. That's who we are. My family, it knows it's a pet peeve of mine to leave dirty dishes in the sink. You know, pots or dishes or whatever after you've cooked a meal and you just put them in the sink and there's food left on them because what happens if they sit there a while? It just crusts over. And then what do you got to do? You just put them in the dish. They think these super dishwashers are just going to knock that crusted stuff off. It don't work, right? <laughs> you can't put those dishes in there like that. You got to cleanse them off before you get on there. But what happens when you don't do that? You got to break out the Brillo pad and the, and the knife and everything. And you got to scrape and scrub and all that stuff. That's, that's what he's talking about here. That's what Paul is comparing himself to. We are like the scum of the world 
the refuse of all things, and you apparently, Corinthian believers, are not. You are being exalted by the world. You are fitting in with the world. The world loves you as one of its own, but the world looks at us as being scum and refuse. And that's not a pretty picture for us to accept, but that's who we are. That's how the world will always look at us. And the challenge for us today as we look through these verses and as we see Paul confronting this church is to examine our own, examine our own individuals, our own lives individually and examine our church corporately to see <coughs> if we think that we are different, if we've arrived, if we are kings, are we boasting in things as if we have arrived? Do we have a church that thinks that we are operating in our own abilities, in our own wisdom, in our own skills, in our own whatever? Or do we understand that we are everything that we have is a gift of God and that whenever we are walking in God's grace, whenever we are living for God, we are, whenever we are out there doing the most work for God, we're going to be the most rejected by the community that we're called to go out into. It's kind of a paradox, really, if you to live in this community. We would love, hopefully one day, if, if Ephesus Church ever ceased to exist, that the Rinkin community would say, please don't let that happen. Please do not stop existing Ephesus Church. <laughs> but on the other hand, if we're getting to that point, in order to get to that point, we know we're going to have to get out there in that messy, nasty culture of unredeemed people and we're going to be called scum, we're going to be reviled, we're going to be slandered, we're going to be persecuted. And so it's kind of a paradox because in order to get there to where that, the community embraces you and loves your presence, you have to confront that community with the gospel and they're not going to like it. They're going to turn from it because that's not the wisdom that they're, that they're ingrained with. They're, they don't understand the wisdom of Christ crucified. But that, again, that is the glory and beauty of the Christian life. It is... It, we're out there to serve Christ. He's the King. He's, he's the Creator of all. He's, he's the Creator of all these people around us. He loves them because they're created in His image. And we're just called to go out there with a simple message that is, Jesus Christ died for your sins. If you repent of your sins and receive Christ by faith, He will forgive you of your sins. It's really not that hard. It's the good news of the gospel. And if we understand that that is what our focus is, that is why we exist, why, that is why we have on this building and that building and that building is so that we can get out in this community with that message, then I think we will, we will be better in better shape to not recreate the Corinthian experience. Because as we've seen, it, it's very easy to get there. The Corinthians got there. The Laodiceans got there. The Galatians were messed up in a certain way. Every church has these issues. But if we understand that this is not our world to this present hour, we hunger and thirst and are poorly dressed and we're beaten and homeless. And we labor and when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. And we understand all these things. that we're, To the world, we are scum. 
We are the offscurrings, the refuse of all things. <coughs> but it's not us that they're going to accept, right? We're just the messengers of the message that God will use that when His power comes upon them as the Holy Spirit decides, they will accept that because as the Scripture says, my people will be willing in the day of my power. We can have great joy and great expectancy that God will use us in this community because He is the one who takes His message and penetrates hard hearts. We can never do it. We cannot... We cannot package it pretty enough. We cannot create enough programs, enough fun, enough whatever. We cannot do anything to penetrate hard hearts. But God can. And He always does. And He's pleased to do it. He's pleased to take the simple message of Christ crucified and apply it to fallen humanity. And He uses His people as vessels to do that. And if we understand that that, that it is our great blessing to be used by God to do that and to be a part of that great work, then we are in a right frame of mind to live in this world. And I hope by God's grace that we will never get to a place to where we are prideful of where we are or where we may become, but that we understand that all that we receive and all that we have and all that we do are just fruits and blessings of God's grace and mercy to us. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful again for your many, many blessings that you give us. And Father, we struggle daily in our, in our, in our bodies as we live with our ingrown sin. And Father, as we struggle to, to live in a society, Father, that is so counter to our beliefs. Father, give us always a spirit of humility and love that they are only acting as we acted before you rescued us. And, Father, we know that pride is an abomination to you, Father, and their pride manifests itself in so many different ways. And, Father, so I pray, God, that you are exposing pride in every single person in our church, in our homes, in our workplaces. Father, that we would always be a people of humility and love, For your glory we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.